So my name is Tina Ryan. I'm one of the trainees members committee for the Royal College and welcome to another clinical conversations podcast. This time it's on the shocked patient. I'm speaking to Dr. Neil Brain, who's one of the senior intensive care trainees and I'll let him explain a wee bit more about himself. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Tina. So yeah, as, as you said, my name is Neil. I'm an ICU and anaesthesia trainee in the west of Scotland, having worked most places in Scotland and a little bit in the north of England as well throughout my training. And yeah, just about just about coming to the end of my training now, so hopefully in a good position to try and impart some wise words about shock today. Okay, so I guess the first obvious question is, what is shock? So I think... Um, what we're really talking about in shock is a kind of inadequate oxygen delivery to tissues, which then leads to kind of cellular hypoxia, organ dysfunction, and ultimately multi-organ failure and death. And I guess to deliver oxygen to the tissues, we're really talking about the oxygen cascade. So everywhere from breathing in, air, taking oxygen up in the lungs, carrying that oxygen in the blood, delivering it by your cardiac output, maintain a perfusion pressure to the tissues with your blood pressure and then cellular uptake of oxygen and oxygen utilisation in cells. Okay. So how would you diagnose a patient who is shocked? So I think that the the main thing to do when you're trying to diagnose shock is, is, is go and see the patient, go and examine them, feel them, feel what their skin is like, speak to them. And what you're really looking for is to try and get evidence of their their end organ function. Because from the end of the bed, it's really difficult to estimate a patient's cardiac output. We we don't have a good machine that will tell us what it is easily. So we have to rely on kind of surrogate markers um, and kind of clinical indicators of what their cardiac output is likely to be. So I think looking at their heart rate and their blood pressure, looking at their skin, are they warm, are they cold, are they sweaty, clammy, dry? And then looking at evidence of uh, perfusion of their brain. So have they had any change in their mental status? Um, Are they confused? Are they orientated? And if there's any evidence of renal dysfunction, so are they passing urine? And I think once you've done those things, you might want to add in a little bit of kind of biochemical investigation so sort of looking for kind of cellular markers of, of dysfunction so are they acidotic have they got a rise la- rise in the lactate is their renal or liver function deteriorating that might suggest that those, those organs are struggling for, for oxygenation and if you come across a patient and you think they are shocked how would you initially treat them say if you're the junior doctor in the ward who first comes upon them so as you might know, in anaesthesia and IC, we, we quite like our equations. And I think when you go, you need to kind of take a step back and think about the kind of underlying physiology. And I think that one of the key things to think about when you're treating shock is, is what the cause of it is. So we always talk to our trainees and our medical students about Uh, a really simple equation that your mean arterial blood pressure is made up of your cardiac output multiplied by your your systemic vascular resistance. And you need both pressure and flow to deliver oxygen to the tissues. And that pressure is made up of the factor of the systemic vascular resistance. That's how vasodilated or vasoconstricted they are. And you can often tell that by how warm or cold the, the patient is around the edges. 
and their cardiac output. And their cardiac output is made up of their heart rate, which we can obviously measure easily, and their stroke volume, which is obviously a little bit more tricky to try and determine. But when we're thinking about stroke volume, the three kind of determinants that add into that are the, the preload, the afterload, and the contractility. Now, if you can kind of separate those things out in your head, all of the causes of shock and all of the treatments that we're going to be able to initiate for it are going to affect one or, or often more than one of those kind of variables. So if we think about heart rate, for instance, if you've got a very bradycardic patient, then treating their underlying bradycardia is obviously going to improve their cardiac output. Systemic vascular resistance, again, is often one of the most low systemic vascular resistances, one of the most common causes of, of shock or kind of phenotypes of shock that we see in hospital and whether that be sepsis that's causing it or anaphylaxis or a kind of drug drug response the low stroke volume shock can either be a kind of primary cardiac problem so someone who's had acute mi who has chronic heart failure who has myocarditis or something like that that's that's caused their their intrinsic cardiac function to be poor or someone who's got a very low preload. So that could be a hypovolemic patients. They either lost blood or they've lost fluid or the fluid's in the wrong places um, or an obstructive patient. So they've either got a big P or cardiac tamponade or one of those other kind of obstructive problems. So I tend to try and think, before I start thinking about how I'm going to treat the patient, you really need to think about what the cause is. And when I'm breaking down the cause, I investigate the cause, I try and break it down into those areas so I can work out what, what I'm targeting my treatment at. Does that make sense? I guess, yeah, it does. I guess when I come across shock in, in patients in the ward, it's mostly either hypovolemic or they're septic and very occasionally it's obstructive but yeah. so one of the things that I can sometimes get in a little bit of a muddle about is what kind of fluids to give first and how fast yeah so I, I think your... assessing fluid responsiveness is really important for these patients and I think that the first differentiator is is trying to separate the truly shocked patient from the patient that's probably just a little bit volume behind and has a slightly low blood pressure related to that because I think the the latter patients probably respond quite quickly to a bit of fluid and can probably be looked after wherever they are with fairly minimal escalation of therapy or concern the, the truly shocked patients need much more invasive and aggressive treatment I would say in terms of trying to decide how much fluid to give a patient and how quickly and when I think the only thing that you can do is, is stand at the end of the bed and give a little bit and see what happens and I think that some people are kind of big proponents of things like the passive leg raise so I think that can be useful where you're kind of auto transfusing the patient some of their own volume back into the kind of right side of circulation so you have your patient flat in the bed lift their legs to 45 degrees and that should hopefully increase their preload and if you see that they're the markers that you were suggesting makes you think that they're shocked. So their heart rate, their low blood pressure, their altered mentation, their kind of um, skin to skin temperature and those things improve when you do that, then you, it makes you lean towards the idea that they're being preload responsive or likely to benefit from fluids. I think if you're going to go on and give some fluids, 
I normally give 250 mil aliquots. I tend to try and give it as quickly as I can. I think in terms of what fluids you use, I think there's no evidence that colloids are any better than crystalloids. I think if you're going to give a crystalloid, it probably makes more sense to give a balanced solution like Hartman's or plasmoid, but there's, there's certainly not any great evidence to support that. And I think saline's just as good in terms of what, what the evidence base is there for. I think the one thing that you should probably avoid is any hypotonic fluids. So yeah, 5% dextrose is probably not the, the go-to in this situation. With um, Hartman's solution, is there any worry about, about the potassium or the lactate in that? I don't, I, I don't tend to worry about it. Um, I, I guess maybe that reflects that I tend to practice in intensive care unit where we have very rapid access to blood gases and investigations and all the other stuff that goes along with that. But I think that the amount of potassium inside in a bag of apartments is actually, you know, if you've got a truly hyperkalemic patient, maybe making a small incremental increase in the whole body potassium isn't ideal, but you're always going to dilute a high potassium down because you're giving more water than you are potassium. So I don't tend to worry about it at all. And I think the deleterious acid-based changes of giving non-balanced crystalloids probably outweigh it. So I tend not to worry about it. Okay. And at what point when you're giving fluid, treating someone who's shocked, do you think I need to escalate to high dependency or a more a higher level of care? So I think um, I think that's really difficult to do, isn't it? I, I think if you've got a patient that responds very quickly to the treatment that you're giving them and they remain so you, you give them some treatment, they get better and they stay better, then they're probably safe where they are. I think that most other patients, so if they don't respond to that initial therapy or they respond and then get worse again, are likely to be in a group that probably benefit from being in an area where they can have closer monitoring. And I think these patients are really sick. You know, truly shocked patients are a very, very sick group of patients. And the only way to look after them is having the time to stand at the bedside. And I think that's what the luxury of intensive care and HCU allows you. Sometimes when we see patients, they we give them fluid, they get better, and then they're stable for a while, and then they get worse again. We give them more fluid, they get better. At what level of kind of fluid resuscitation do you start to get worried? Because we've had patients that are four litres positive over the course of a night shift. Is there any level of fluid we should be getting worried at? I think that's really difficult, isn't it? Like, And I can tell you that sometimes even in ICU you can stand at the edge of the bed and spend 12 hours syringing in fluids and get to the morning and be seven eight nine liters positive and it's been the right thing to do I think there's other patients that you see that you keep giving fluids and fluids and fluids to and actually what they really need is a vasoconstrictor I think differentiating those groups of patients out is hard I think it goes back to trying to think about what the underlying causes. I think that the most common group in hospital who we struggle with are the septic patients. And I think septic shock probably reflects a mixture of hypovolemia and vasodilation. Sometimes we end up just treating the hypovolemia and not treating the vasodilation. And actually, really, you need to kind of treat 
both at the same time. I guess that a useful bit of evidence that kind of helps us helps point us in the right direction here is the sensor trial. So that looked at giving early peripheral noradrenaline to shocked patients, and it showed that you kind of got a quicker resolution of symptoms and for, with giving a lower volume of resuscitative fluid the sooner you started noradrenaline, which obviously makes sense. But it also showed that you didn't cause harm by giving them noradrenaline early. Um, and they just use peripheral dilute noradrenaline, which is kind of outside of a lot of people's usual practice in hospitals, I would say. But I think it, it points towards the fact that we, we maybe should think about escalating their therapy and starting some vasoconstrictors sooner rather than later, particularly when you get above that kind of 40 to 60 mils per kilo. So, you know, you're, you're two litres positive sort of patient. Some, sometimes they will just need more and more fluid, but often what they need is some vasoconstrictor as well. When you do get to that stage, what, how do you choose which inotrope or vasoconstrictor? I guess in medicine, we tend to use the word inotrope very loosely. Yeah. Uh, meaning vasoconstrictor and inotrope. Which, which one do you tend to choose doses to give? Yeah, so I think that I sound really repetitive here, but I think it depends on the underlying cause, doesn't it? So I think what we need to differentiate is the patients that we think are vasodilated with a high cardiac output. So that's what you you kind of classic septic patient often appears like. They're warm around the edges. They've got bounding peripheral pulses, but their blood pressure is often quite low. They may have a wide pulse pressure. They may well have evidence of kind of end organ hypoperfusion, so a low urine output, maybe altered mentation. I think those patients clearly what they need is a vasoconstrictor. And I think in that situation, the most evidence is for using noradrenaline. I think that's what most critical care units would use. And I think that you just start with a low dose and titrate your dose to effect. So most places would normally start with a dose of kind of maybe 0 0.01, 0 0.02 mics per kilo per minute, which probably for, for most kind of ordinary sized humans, it will be kind of between two and six mils an hour if you're standard strength noradrenaline. Mm -hmm. And I think that you then aim for a blood pressure with a, a mean of around 65 and assess your response. So do you see a reduction in the heart rate? Do you see an improvement in the urine output? Does the lactate come down? All of those sorts of things, you, you just need to go back and, and look and see whether you're achieving your goals, really. For the patients that are shocked with a low cardiac output, so these are going to be the ones that we see that have a kind of cold around the edges. They might well have evidence of pulmonary congestion as well. I think that there's no strong evidence to guide as to which um, ionotrope is the best drug to use. Uh, I think it just depends on the unit you work in. Some units will use adrenaline in the first instance. Other units will use dibutamine. None is better than the other. I think use what's familiar to you and what your staff are, are used to using and used to titrating. Where does, um, I guess the ones that I'm most familiar using are noradrenaline and dibutamine. Yeah. Where does metraminol come in this? I guess it depends uh, on who, who you ask. Like my own personal views are that metraminol is a drug that we should 
probably really only use in either perioperative setting, whereby you've got someone that you have almost deliberately vasodilated, that you know is going to be a temporary effect and uh, will get better in a short period of time, and you're just using the metronomal to tide you over that. Or you're using it to buy a little bit of time to get some central access and put uh, them on noradrenaline. I guess there's a group of patients that uh, maybe aren't suitable for central access for whatever reason, but you would like to improve their blood pressure in the short term that, that may benefit from metronomal. But I think for most people they're properly shocked, they should just get a central line and get some noradrenaline. Just carrying on from that, are there any groups of patients or particular patients that we should be, that we shouldn't be using inotropes or vasopressors in? So I I think the, one of the dangers is trying to over vasoconstrict a patient who has got a low cardiac output. So if we've not got the diagnosis right and we think the patient's got septic shock or something like that we're trying to treat their their low systemic vascular resistance but actually the problem is that their their cardiac output isn't good enough then actually using a drug like dubutamine or adrenaline to improve their cardiac output is clearly better than just squeezing and squeezing and squeezing Um, and i think that's a common a common area that everybody gets trapped in and usually the clue to that is that your vasoconstricted dose is escalating and you're not seeing any response. So, do you know, if you end up doubling up your, your noradrenaline and the blood pressure doesn't get any better, then there's probably a clue that it's not the right drug for that situation. I think the other thing about inotropes is that they obviously all increase myocardial oxygen consumption. So your adrenalines, your dibutamines, are likely to increase the the oxygen demands that the heart uh, has and just being wary of that and clearly just cranking them up and making your patient's cardiac output super normal isn't going to help improve them. I think the other kind of worry that people sometimes have uh, those with kind of peripheral vascular disease or kind of already vulnerable vulnerable circulation beds so be that you kind of peripheral circulation fingers and toes that are maybe a little bit dusky or in surgical patients that have a, a kind of neuroanastomosis or something like that we worry about over vasoconstricting those patients but I think really what you have to do is kind of target target your treatment on what you think the problem is and if you if you truly think they've got a low systemic vascular resistance they need a vasoconstrictor if they've got a low cardiac output then they might need an inotrope so i think as long as you're targeting your treatment sensibly then you're, you're unlikely to cause harm and is there anything we would do if you've got a septic patient and you're needing increasing doses of inotropes is there anything you could add in or is it really you just need to think about your diagnosis again yeah so i think um i think again that making sure you've got the right diagnosis is really important i think at that point it probably worthwhile getting some bedside investigations so most critical care units now will have the ability to do a bedside echo and i think that you can very quickly gain an awful lot of information and it sometimes helps you differentiate those patients that you're on the the right treatment lines but you've just not given enough or enough time 
from those where you've got the diagnosis wrong and actually you need to kind of change your change your approach a little bit for the kind of vasoplegic patients that you are just unable to generate enough blood pressure in then there's some evidence that adding some steroids and some vasopressin to your noradrenaline probably will lead to a quicker resolution of shock and less kind of medium-term organ dysfunction. So there's a bit of evidence in the, there's a few trials, one called VAST, one called Vanish, and one called Adrenal that all point towards a, a benefit from steroids. So kind of 50 mics of hydrocortisone six hourly and adding in vasopressin. I would say that most units tend to use it once you've got above the 0.1 mics per kilo per hour kind of dose. So thinking about it when you get to that kind of 15 mils, 20 mils an hour of noradrenaline. In terms of the inotropy side of things, if you've got a patient who's got a low cardiac output, they haven't improved with some fluids and some adrenaline or some dibutamine and the the cardiac output's still low, then I think the things to think about are whether they would benefit from a a balloon pump or mechanical circulatory support. And you're obviously going to be guided by your cardiology and cardiothoracic ICU colleagues in that sort of setting. But it's probably just worth being a bit wary that if you don't ask the question you'll you'll never know the answer so it's worth speaking to your colleagues early about those patients that have got a low cardiac output that you're not getting on top of they often will need to be in the right place to receive those advanced treatments so that's going to take time so it's worth doing sooner rather than later i think the other thing to think about when you're struggling is that actually measuring the patient's cardiac output is, is probably going to help. So we use a number of cardiac output monitors in intensive care. A lot of them look at arterial line traces, so what we call pulse contour analysis, we can use to help guide and titrate our therapy. We occasionally use kind of more invasive things, so pulmonary artery catheters or esophageal Doppler monitors that can directly measure cardiac output. Also, like serial non-invasive measurements by echocardiography might help as well. I think um, clearly by that point, you need to be contacting ICU. And I, I think my general impression is that it's worth contacting ICU sooner rather than later. I think if you are either struggling to get the diagnosis or get on top of treatment, Um, most ICUs will be very receptive to hearing about these patients. And I hope that everyone's experience is that we're generally pretty happy to help in these situations and and whether that's help guide treatment where the patient is or taking the patient to ICU to to give them more complex therapy, then they'll be in the right place at the right time. There's obviously lots of um, information out there to help with these things. The Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine has lots of resources on their websites and lots of links to kind of learn pro modules and things like that. Those people that are interested, it's probably worth having a look at those trials. So Fast, Vanish, Adrenal and Sensor are probably the helpful ones. And there's also been a lot of work done looking at goal-directed therapy, particularly in septic shock by the likes of the Surviving Sepsis campaign. Yeah, so their their trials looking at goal-directed therapy are all really useful to have a look at. 
I know that one of the other things you wanted to talk about, Tina, was about COVID in particular. So I would say in, in my experience, and I don't think any of us are, are kind of experts by a, a long stretch on this, but we haven't generally seen patients with COVID presenting in profound vasodilatory shock or, or kind of septic shock like we might see with other pneumonic processes. It has been common for them to deteriorate from a shock point of view further down the line. Lots of those patients have had pulmonary embolisms and have obstructive shock or have right heart failure secondary to pulmonary hypertension or or direct insults to the right heart. So I think um, thinking about the right heart, getting an echo, treating your pulmonary circulation is probably important and trying to exclude PE would be my advice about the the COVID patient. So I guess that probably winds up just about everything that we're going to speak about. My top tips are make sure that you get a diagnosis early try and treat the underlying cause. Sometimes doing less is is more for these patients and and maybe a little bit of two treatments is better than an awful lot of one of them. But if you're struggling, please phone ICU. Don't be worried about phoning early about these patients and taking an ultrasound to the bed space and having a look at the patient is usually really, really helpful and, and might often pick up problems that have been missed in the kind of initial clinical assessment. I hope that's okay, Tina. If there's anything else that you'd like to ask about or go through, please let me know.